In this episode of the Exploring Information Security Podcast, how to build a security operations center or SOC. Part two. I am your host, Timothy D. Block, and in this episode, we'll be continuing our discussion with Paul Jorgensen of IBM and discussing how to build a SOC. How do you evaluate the effectiveness of a SOC? Right. So, again, it's all about reporting. And it's important to, I guess, actually, let me, let me, let me step back a little bit. When I was running security in my old organization, there was a typical problem inside of the industry of how do you prove a negative, right? If we're a security organization and we're doing our jobs, nobody will know that we're there. It's only when there's a security event that happens where we've got to go maybe cut off access to the internet for a while as part of our containment measures that anybody's going to even notice what we're doing, right? Now, maybe we're doing stuff like having regular updates to leadership and the business and yada, 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 all that fun stuff. But sometimes, you know, if you're more of a, as we say, a duct tape and bailing wire type of security organization, you don't have time to go and tell people how great you are because you're too busy being great. Uh, so, so, you know, being able to go and, and, quantifiably show the business that we're doing what we say that we're doing uh, was something that was just not, not easy to produce at the time. But luckily people much smarter than me uh, uh, came up with some ways to show it. Some, some reports, some metrics, some capabilities that can, uh, objectively, quantifiably show what security is doing, what the SOC is doing. And I should make a, a, a good point here. Uh, uh, a SOC and a security organization typically go hand in hand. They typically report up to the same, whether it's a, a chief information security officer or chief security officer or whatever, um, they tend to report up to the same chain. But they tend to be two different organizations in that your security team, they might run the IDS ITP solution. They might run the firewalls. They might run the VPN. They might do encryption. They might have all of the stuff, but it's a very active security role, actually playing with these tools, actually putting them into production, uh, doing the maintenance, uh, the care and feeding. A SOC does not actually administer anything. They don't actually make any changes, right? So if a, let's say a major security event happens, it goes through those three tiers that we talked about. When it comes to the traditional response, your, your identification, that's the SOC. But when it comes to containment and eradication, the SOC is not doing any of that. They're not putting in firewall rules. They're not putting in black hole routes on routers. They're not uh, uh, restricting access to databases or anything like that. It's the security organization. It's IT. It's a bunch of other folks. But it is not the SOC in the traditional sense making those changes. 
And the reason is simple. The SOC is there to watch, to monitor, to alert, and to respond. You don't want the people that are watching the door also doing the maintenance on the door. So if there is, for example, a malicious insider in the security organization, if they're able to turn off the monitoring and then open up changes to the firewall and then say exfiltrate some data and then put the stuff back in again, there is nobody there that would be any of the wiser. Now, if you have those two organizations separate, the likelihood of a conspiracy of multiple people with totally separate roles to be able to pull this sort of thing off is reduced dramatically. So you really want the watchers not making changes to your security infrastructure. You want them monitoring, responding, and then coordinating changes that are required to do your containment, eradication, etc. So it's very important that the SOC works very closely with the security organization, as well as works very closely with uh, IT. And for the sake of conversation, we're considering IT a separate organization. And the SOC has to work very closely with the business, the risk team, HR, legal, communications and PR, and the actual business people. So you have a bunch of different constituencies in there. So when we talk about the reporting and we talk about showing that value, it's also showing value to these other folks. But then also the effectiveness of the SOC relies on those other folks. So it's important to be able to measure. For example, we have some kind of a security issue. Uh, the SOC goes through Tier 1, Tier 2. Tier 2 determines that, yeah, we need the network team involved. So let's say going through Tier 1 and Tier 2 takes 90 minutes, right? So they do their stuff. The ticket goes, boom. Goes to the network team. Network team takes them three days to make the change. They finally make the change. Ticket comes back. Uh, the SOC closes the ticket. Goes through re reporting, you know, the, the measurements and everything else. Report gets kicked out. Um why did it take the network team three days to respond to this security issue? That seems odd. So hopefully the first place that you go with that information is back to the network guys. And you say, hey, our reporting is showing this based off of the ticketing system, based off of uh, 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 our, our similar, et cetera. Um, what happened here? Maybe it was a, eh, you guys went to the back of the queue. You know, we all were all out at a vendor-sponsored sporting event. We couldn't bother to get around to this anytime soon. Or they go in and say, yeah, we got that, but it took us two days to be able to nail down exactly what it was that was going on and how best to respond to it because we didn't get enough information in that ticket that you guys kicked over to us. So it could be a lot of different things that, that trigger that, but it's important to have that you go through, you address those issues. Then when you go to leadership, you say, yeah, so this particular security event, it was a, a level three. Um, we did the response, handed it off to network. They did their stuff. They came back. So total response time was three days and 90 minutes. Um, and uh, based off of that, based off of the systems that were impacted, we estimate that you know uh, the business impact was X number of dollars. And because of our response, uh, we potentially saved the company – X numbers of additional dollars or that the cost per effort to uh, respond to that security issue was roughly say a hundred bucks where if we had let it 
you know, progressed further, if we hadn't responded as quickly, it would have been, you know, $10,000 or whatever. Um, it shows how that those security issues translate into actual dollars, actual response, actual effort, and that is meaningful to the business. So it's kind of a long rambling answer to the question. Uh, but uh, yeah, definitely the reporting piece and then having good reports that are um, tailored to the audience. Not that we're, we're hiding anything or we're masking what's going on, but the reports that we give to um, the SOC manager or the security manager is going to be a low-level report around ticket queues and response times and stuff like that. But when we get up to upper leadership, the C-level folks, they're going to want those dollar figures. They're going to want those response times. They're going to want to know things like how well the SOC is uh, helping to maintain the reputation of the company, for example. Um, so, so having those separate reports, having it tailored to those folks where it can be the most meaningful for them, and hopefully to use it as an opportunity to educate non-security folks about security uh, uh, you know, is, is also there and an important uh, component. Now, I should say one other thing about reporting before we get off of this one is that um, if I had a nickel for every time a, uh, a manager, a director uh, sees something, goes and says, you know what I really want in this report? I want top 10 bad IP addresses internally, top 10 bad IP addresses outside, da-da-da-da-da. They want this whole list of top 10 stuff. Top 10 lists are useless. They don't tell anything. They might be bad IP addresses because, guess what? They're bad. We know they're bad. That's why they're there. If we're blocking them at the firewall, then we're doing what we're supposed to do. If I go and report on this meaningless data, that's wasting time. It's wasting money. We don't have a lot of this time and money sitting around. So as part of that, that uh, security awareness, that security training, that education, when you get those requests for those types of metrics, uh, try to coach them to uh, the types of reports and the types of output uh, that will actually have meaning for them, will actually convey information, will actually be actionable and not just a warm, fuzzy pie chart. Pie chart. What's that? Bob? <laughs> Ask Bob Rudis about pie charts. <laughs> oh, I know. He <laughs> loves them. He might, he might black out. <laughs> um, so you mentioned models. Are, is, are there different or how many? What, what are some of the different models that can be used for building a SOC? So um, the traditional one is the, the in-house SOC, which we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, an option that, yeah, again, maybe there's a specific reason why it would need to be done this way, but there is an outsourced sock option, which is basically you trust some outside third party to do tier one, tier two, tier three, emergency response, forensics, all of this stuff for you. Uh, I don't recommend it. Uh, and and some people might think it's funny coming from uh, a consulting uh, group like I do uh, that I have this particular opinion. But um, you can't 
as as a company, as a as a corporation, as an organization, you can't abdicate the responsibility for security. You can't farm it out, chuck it over the fence, uh, and hope everything is going to go well. Because nobody is going to know your business better than you. You can bring in outside folks um, to, to do this kind of stuff, and maybe it will be successful. But it will not be as successful as if you have people with, again, that business knowledge of your environment um, to be able to know what's important to you uh, to help prioritize and categorize stuff. Now, what I have seen done and I have participated in is uh, companies, instead of outsourcing it, they'll go and say, okay, we want to staff this up, but we don't, it's going to take us a while to find people to staff, especially the tier two, tier three, you outside consulting company, uh, we want to hire people for three years or whatever. And they're going to sit here in our offices. They're going to report to our manager here um, as a stopgap until we're able to fill these roles. And again, I say three years. They could contract for one year. It could be six months, whatever. But uh, I tend to find that uh, organizations generally are optimistic about their ability to hire, train, and retain people for these roles. Uh, it is uh, always 10 times harder to do than they think it's going to be. Um, so these folks might come in on a six-month hitch, uh, but then three years later, they're still there. And now, yeah, these guys have business knowledge and all this other fun stuff, but they're not your employee. Uh, if, if, if you go and say, hey, you know what? This guy's doing a really lousy job. You can't fire him. You can kick him out, uh, but you're stuck in the exact same position that you've been. And you didn't have control over that person really to begin with anyway because you're not dealing directly with that person. You're dealing with contracts and paper and sales teams and yada, 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 all of this infrastructure around bringing these people in. So it's not advantageous. But again, in a lot of cases, because they can't get that staffing, they have to do that sort of thing. So the staffing model and the, the actual SOC model are kind of two overlapping aspects. So you could have, say, a hybrid SOC like we talked about before, an outsourced tier one, and then in-house tier two and tier three. But maybe that tier three, that those expert skills, uh, you've got contractors in filling that role until you're able to actually hire those. Um, so it gets a little confusing in there. Um, yeah. So anyway, and then when it comes to the hybrid piece, um, there's lots of different ways to. Uh, as we say, skin that cat. Uh, it could be that tier one, and then maybe something called, um, you know, your cert team. Uh, your, uh, you know, if you really want to go nuts, your C cert team, cybersecurity incident response team, who handle uh, major security incidents. Maybe you contract that uh, that that functionality out. Maybe the forensics piece is something that you're not capable of doing, so you farm that out. Maybe you don't have uh, uh, skilled network security people. You've got great network people. You've got great security people, but they don't overlap, or maybe they don't even really deal with each other as much as they should. So having somebody with that specific skill set might be valuable. 
um, having uh, maybe some security engineers come in to help with the tools and the automation and stuff related to the SOC uh, could be useful. So uh, again, there are a lot of different ways to do a hybrid model. Uh, Within IBM, we have a very nice um, SOC operating model, which is our uh, kind of our, our platonic ideal. And we use this with all of our customers. It calls out all the different pieces, the interactions with different parts of the business, IT, et cetera. And then, you know, we sit there and we discuss, you know, maybe, maybe this piece isn't a, a good fit for you guys, but it's something that, that we might be able to step in and do. Maybe they've got consultants already in doing this other piece up here. And so we put something together that uh, is a good fit for that organization based off of our operating model. All right, so let's get to the actual steps. What's the first step in building a SOC? Okay, so if you have a security organization already, not necessarily a SOC, but a security organization, at least, um, that has been around for a while, you've got some tools and and whatnot, uh, we generally recommend doing a security maturity assessment. Lots of different ways to do this. Different companies handle it in different different ways. But basically, it's an outsider's view on what you're actually doing. Uh, when we do this, and we have a, a, a very formalized process for how we, we handle these uh, uh, SMAs, we call them. We will typically, when we first come in, we like to do two separate conversations. The first one is with leadership, and we go through the SMA. Then we'll sit down with the actual techies, the actual security folks, and we'll go through the SMA. I have not seen a situation that varies from this, which is the leadership SMA is very optimistic about where the organization is. They tend to think that from a security perspective, they're doing a very good job. Then you actually talk to the techies. And they tend to be very pessimistic about where they are from a security perspective. And then you bring them all into a room and you show them these results. And you know, we put these numbers together and we do some other cool mathematical stuff on the back end. Uh, but basically, it becomes an eye-opening experience for, for both sides of that coin. And we take them through and we say, you know, look, based off of what you guys have told us, Based off of our understanding of your business, we recommend on a scale from zero to five in each of these categories, I think ours, we've got um, eight different uh, families that we work with, with like uh, 33 different subcategories inside of them. You know, based off of these on a level from zero to five in each of these areas, this is where you should be. This is where you are today. And so now let's sit here and talk about, A, how we arrived at those numbers, and then B, where you want to be in six months, maybe 18 months, maybe 36 months. And then based off of that information, uh, we'll sit down and go over our roadmap. But having that maturity assessment and understanding where you are from an organizational perspective, when we talk about people, when we talk about processes, when we talk about technology, when we talk about that understanding of the business and the interactions with the rest of the organ with the rest of the company, um, that gives us an excellent starting point. 
So we're not running around and, and doing uh, uh, what we've talked about on the, the PVC security podcast many times, shiny object syndrome. We're not running around installing a bunch of blinking lights and stuff like that. We start out assessing the environment and then figuring out where, again, those sparse resources for time and for money are going to be the best fit for the business. Now, let's say you're in a security environment. Maybe you're on the smaller side. Having this kind of outside assessment might be you know, too rich for your blood. Maybe you're one of these security organizations where it's, again, duct tape and bailing wire, right? Uh, so, so you can't necessarily do this. So if that were the case, then I would, and I have, started at the end. So I start at that CSERT, that Cybersecurity Incident Response Team. And specifically, I work on the Incident Response Plan. Now, uh, I think it's, it's uh, the most useful security document that you can have inside of your organization, better than the security policy, by far. This is something that's actionable and meaningful. If you don't already have one, uh, you go to uh, SANS. The SANS Institute has a great uh, generic template you can work off of. I think the uh, uh, the CIS folks have one. I think uh, NIST might have one out of the U.S. Certainly different um, CERT organizations around the world uh, have some of these kicking around as well. Uh, doesn't matter which one you go with. Grab one. Tailor it to your specific needs. And then do a little security roadshow of this thing. Go talk to IT. Go talk to leadership. Go talk to the business. Go talk to HR, legal, all of these other groups that we talked about. And say, look, this is, this is our plan. Uh, when security things happen, right, this is what we're going to do. And all of you are going to be involved in this. We can't do this alone. We need your help. By the same token, especially you business folks, and you risk management folks, in order for us to enact this incident response plan, um, we kind of need to know what's important to the business. And so now you've kicked off that conversation. They've got a document in their hand that shows how you're actually going to do this stuff. Now you need that business intelligence coming in to tell you how to make that useful to the organization. And hopefully the business folk, the risk folks, and all these other folks are doing the internal math. And they're saying, oh, yeah, I see how this goes together. Now I continue to work backwards, make sure I get the skills in, the people in. You know, Maybe I've got all these logs you know, out there. Now I can go when it's budget time and I need to get, say, a SIM platform in. And maybe that's even a step too far. Maybe just a log management platform to start with. Right, something to just take all of these logs and put them together and give them some kind of meaning. It's a lot easier at that point because I've talked to them already about what this is going to do, how this is going to impact the business. Now, some folks will go and say, "Wait, wait, wait! I've got, I've got firewalls. I've got IDS, IDP. I've got all this stuff, and I got, I got these alerts. I just want to deal with these alerts. How do I deal with these alerts?" Um, you really want to take it from the other side and then work back to that. So once you have these people, processes, technology in place, and you have an understanding of what's important, then you can deal with those alerts. But trying to do it from the other side and work forward, as it were, um, 
you're going to find that you never get to the end because all you're doing is dealing with alerts all the time. Uh, so you can't focus on the bigger picture. Start with the bigger picture, work your way down to the specifics. And that will do it for part two of how to build a sock. Hopefully you learned something. If you didn't, drop me a line on Twitter at Timothy D Block. That's D-E-B-L-O-C-K. Or email me at timothy.dblock at gmail.com. Let me know what you didn't learn and we'll cover it in a future podcast. Show notes can be found at timothydblock.com forward slash E-I-S. If you enjoyed the show, share it with others and rate it on iTunes. If you'd like to donate to the show, check out my Patreon page at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash e-i-s. Have a good one.